and welcome to the bi-monthly Industry 4.0 Community Podcast hosted by 4.0 Solutions. I am your moderator today, Walker D. Reynolds. Today we're going to be, we've got Sean Robinson from Novatech who's joining us from a conversation we had on LinkedIn. Um, and we're going to be talking about building versus buying MES. This is obviously something we've been talking about a lot over the last four to six weeks because we did the core MES bootcamp last year. We did the, uh, we're about to do the advanced MES bootcamp. Um, and we've been talking a lot about, you know, obviously my position is that everyone at some point eventually builds their MES, whether they're building 10% of it, 20% of it, or 100% of it, you eventually build. Uh, Sean has a long history, uh, long background with manufacturing execution, um, um, solutions development, um, you name it. And uh, he's he has so graciously joined the podcast to have this conversation uh, with us. And we're going to bring him in here in a couple of minutes right after uh, we do our announcements. So for those of you who are in mentorship, we have our mentorship call this Friday, nine o'clock. The sprint, uh, sprint number two for virtual factory has been extended to Thursday night. Uh, I'll be reaching out to a couple of the developers. So uh, um, Amy Williams, Dylan, a couple of you who have been doing a lot of the development of Virtual Factory, I'll be reaching out to you guys tomorrow to touch base on some of the things that you guys have developed. Second chat GPT workshop, Wednesday, April 26th. That's next Wednesday at 10 o'clock in the morning. Remember, we're going to be building two products from scratch. One of them is going to be a spark plug product. Obviously, the first workshop was a huge huge success. Um, and uh, I, I'm really excited. We got four hours, which means we're probably going to do about a month's worth of development, like a four hour window, which is awesome. First advanced MES bootcamp session is next Saturday. So after the ChatGPT workshop at 830 in the morning, that's where we're going to be doing. We're going to basically be migrating core to our advanced architecture. So all the visualizations will come through the unified namespace. We'll build a couple of uh, custom features, specifically defect tracking, and I think we're going to do changeover and then um, we're going to move all of the code to an external Python library. Um, for those of you who are in the Northeastern United States, remember, I'll be speaking at Mass MEP on May 19th. I'm doing the keynote address first thing in the morning, I think eight o'clock. It's a May 19th of a Friday. Uh, so if you guys want to go, the link will be in the description of this video. If you guys want to come and see that. And then I'm also going to be speaking at IoT Happy Hour here in Dallas on June 1st. And with that, we'll bring in Vaughn, Zach, and Sean. <clears throat> Ahoy, everybody. How's it going? What up? Awesome. They so Sean here speaking out all these events, dude. <laughs> Sean, thank you for, for joining us, man. So uh, real quick, so we can get right into the MES conversation, because I'm actually going to read through the thread, our back and forth, so that everybody who's listening knows what the exchange was. Um, why don't you go ahead and quickly introduce yourself, you, you know, who are you? How did you get to this exact moment? Yeah, um, so I think probably the, uh, the highlights worth mentioning. Um, fell into industrial IT by accident back in 1993. Up to that point, I had done what all good Canadians do, which isn't being a lumberjack. It's actually joining your mom and dad in the family business and graduating from dealing with just IT infrastructure during the first PC and client server revolution to hanging up a shingle that says, we'll do database back systems development for hire. So everything from uh, season ticket management systems for sports franchises to actuarial systems to display advertising and magazine circulation management. So when the steel mill said, could you write us a scheduling system? We didn't know that was hard. So we said yes. Okay. 
But we were clever enough to realize that uh, once we'd written a schedule, that a schedule that has no feedback is kind of useless. So we wrote them a data collection module, some basic quality management, um, some labeling, and a few other things, and uh, said, look, we thought these would be useful. And they said, geez, you're right. What should we pay you for it? And the next thing you knew, I'd accidentally become an MES guy. And over the years, we refined a few things. So we zoomed particularly in on finite scheduling. Hot tip, if you don't get on that well with your family, don't stay in business. Um, so you should eventually license your technology off so everyone can retire um, or at least, you know, get on to the next stage of their life. So we did that. Got the heck out of high tech for a few years, which was great. Worked for, you know, proper distribution company with a little light manufacturing. And it was great watching tangible product leave the, uh, the dock every day. And then a uh, chap rang me up one day from an SI firm and said, I understand you know about finite scheduling and MES. And I said, who told you that? Your dad. Well, I guess I can't deny it then. So I came and joined an SI for a few years, um, popped to a different one, was stolen by one of the global IT vendors, had an interesting purview there, particularly focused on food and bev and CPG for a few years, and then decided I'd join Novotech, who's a partner to said giant global company because the beer is better in England. And uh, so I basically the highlights. I'll, I'll leave it there. But if anybody asks why I've got certain opinions, they now know the whole gory thread that got me there. So two two quick questions. So uh, number one, um, in steel, was this uh, rolling sheet? What what was the uh, the steel? So this was the steel rod into wire fence and nails. That was that was project number one. And in fact, that was where we probably really cut our, our teeth as a group on the concept of an abstracted data model that could be used to describe diverse manufacturing operations from within a single system. And then for those who don't know finite scheduling, I'll go ahead and let you explain finite scheduling. Oh, yeah. So bearing in mind, we're going back to the ancient 90s, right? So this was when most people thought MRP was exciting. Um, so the finite scheduling job was to actually take physical constraints at the individual asset or process level marry those up to physical product characteristics and then find ways to optimize the sequence in terms of the way production would be released to the floor. So you could do things like minimize changeovers, minimize quality risks, um, you know, because you don't want to make massive changes from, say, one die set to a radically different die set when you're drawing wire to different thicknesses. So the finite part was very much about taking a broad demand plan and turning it into very specific sequences of orders to run in different work centers. Okay, excellent. And um, so... Uh, for those, for the layperson, um, we what we do is we talk about this in terms of um, in scheduling and manufacturing. You want to produce as much as you can in the same amount of time every single day. Every manufacturer generally has a finite amount of time to produce in a given day, and it is not 24 hours per day, believe it or not, because no manufacturer runs 24 hours a day. Even if they're on a 24/7 schedule, they still have some type of scheduled downtime so that they can maintain their operations. So if what I want to do is I want to optimize what I produce in the same amount of time every day, the order in which I op I produce things oftentimes matters. Going from product <laughs> a thousand widgets of product A to a thousand widgets of product B to a thousand widgets of product C is not the same as going A to C to B if all the little elements of changing between A to C is easier and C to B is easier, you want your sequence to be A to C to B. So we talk about this, you know, we want to optimize our scheduling plan so that we're reducing the amount of time it takes us to prep for the next type of product that we're producing. Okay. Yeah. Um, awesome. But, so let's talk a little bit, your background, you, you have a background in um, 
GE Intelligent platform, right? You were you were with with GE there. You Novatech is a in and for those of you guys who don't know the whole GE background, you had GE Digital, GE Intelligent Platform. I think Emerson bought GE Intelligent Platform. They didn't buy digital, right? No, they bought the automation hardware platforms and the related business. And of course, that that particular divestiture caused all sorts of brand confusion for a while. Right. And so Emerson's got a piece. Emerson bought a big chunk of GE's intelligent platform business, which included a bunch of uh, verticals and sectors. PLCs and hardware and all that stuff in particular. So if you're familiar with everything from a Series 6 to a Series 90 to an RX 3i, that's what Emerson bought. If you're a longstanding user of GE software products like their History and their Plant Apps MES, their iFixer, Simplicity SCADAs, GE Digital retained those. Right. GE Digital still has Prophecy and all that. All yeah. that. Stuff. Um, but it, originally, Prophecy was under GE Intelligent Platform, but GE Intelligent Platform has been dissolved and now it's just GE Digital, of which the, the software platforms fall under. Novatech is a Emerson distributor, right? Uh, we're that and a GE digital partner. D GE digital partner, Emerson distributor. And then, but well, I want to point out one quick thing. You guys also yep. are, uh, you guys do PTC Kepware and yep. you also do Avesi's Virgin Dog, which by the way, a little intersection here. I did the keynote address at MDT yes. Avesi's uh, thing last year. I think yep. it was right yeah so yeah. i'm huge by the way huge fan of version dog a lot of people here in the states haven't heard of version dog so yeah. oh, in europe everybody knows about it in the united states they don't huge huge fan of the version dog software all right with that let's go ahead and get into how we had this this original conversation so we did a post on linkedin i think josh i actually wasn't part of this post so uh but our digital media team posted uh where people get mes wrong um and it was, if you work in manufacturing, you've probably heard of MES or manufacturing execution system. However, many people misunderstand what MES really is. It's not a product that you can simply purchase off the shelf, but it's rather a quilt of capabilities that must be put together to fit your unique needs. At its core, MES is the place where a sales order is transformed into the execution of manufacturing. One of the biggest mistakes that companies make is assuming that an off-the-shelf MES system will work for their business. Unfortunately, these systems are designed to enforce the model that exists in the ERP, which doesn't account for unique capabilities or edge cases specific to your business. Instead, your MES system should be a reflection of the reality on the plant floor, designed to be flexible and customized to your specific needs. In fact, no one on the plant floor has ever said that they can't do something just because the ERP or MES system doesn't allow it. Production is always king, and people have and will do things to make sure production happens, whether it's manually moving parts or setting up a temporary conveyor. Your manufacturing execution system should be built to accommodate and support your production needs, not impose a rigid structure from the ERP. So everything that's in there, I agree with. I would probably would have changed the words a little bit. I, I would have put a couple of qualifiers in the middle, but everything in there, 100%, I agree with, okay? Um Sean said, I honestly can't tell if this post is intended to undermine MES concepts and packages through non sequiturs and misdirection. For those who don't know what a non sequitur is, it's when you draw a logical conclusion where a logical conclusion does not exist um, and misdirection, or if it's simply based on a fundamental misunderstanding of why the MES space grew in the first place. The whole point of MES's existence is precisely to separate, among other things, dispatch, finite scheduling, activity management, whip execution, and quality operations from the cost center-focused financial systems layer. 
And to the point that Sam Kirby makes, who he made a he messaged uh, he he had a comment earlier in the thread. Uh, there are solutions that are highly adaptable to different process and production models, as well as to different levels of automation versus human-driven work processes. There are many one-trick packages that have been bent out of shape by their vendors in an attempt to create a broader capability off the back of an originally limited data model and function set. So it's entirely possible to witness a series of failures based on poor fit and or execution. But to make these kinds of sweeping statements betrays either a lack of familiarity with any of the many real good MES solutions available or possibly a desire to create confusion and therefore space to promote an alternative toolkit and approach to delivering the underlying requirements. So I'll pause there because um, I, I come in after this. Um, what I would say is, is when I first read this, I said, I think there's a miscommunication. Possibly, uh, or I'm just not very much of a yeah. diplomat. I have been accused of being a little bit of a, you know, you know what on occasion. And by the way, you're in very good company. <laughs> you're in very good company because I am accused of those same things. Um, what I what I will say is I do not. We don't have a toolkit. We don't have a, we don't have a solution. We have a a philosophy, um, and and so that's what I I follow up with here. So my my comment here is I'll put it this way. There are exactly zero off-the-shelf MES solutions that can be fully integrated to a complete organization without requiring the business to change in some way to fit into the solution. If you install a SCADA solution, what changes? Zero. It's data acquisition, supervision, and control of what is there. Now, that's not entirely true. You have to train operators to use it, and what the operator does changes because they're now around a control panel as opposed to walking the plant floor. But in terms of the, the function of manufacturing, it doesn't change. MES is in fact, an abstraction of operating events. Some coalesced into transactions, some transformed into KPIs, but all referenced against a digital model of operations. There are no non sequiturs here. The conclusion that all MES are in fact built, whether as extensions of off the shelf platforms or custom developed backend API UI via, via the software development lifecycle is derived directly from the fact that there exist exactly zero implementations of off the shelf MES with full organization integration. So full stack edge, full stack edge to cloud wall to wall without requiring the organization to change their operations to fit the solution in some way or without leaving behind data and edge cases, the off the shelf solution cannot account for. What we showed here was less than $40,000 total cost of ownership in about 12 weeks. Today, three years later, total spend is less than $1 million for the entire organization. And they have 100% functional coverage, zero operational changes. And so I think one of the things that we didn't do a good job of in the beginning post was um, everything is a function of time and money. One of the things that One of the things that we put a premium on is making digital transformation accessible to everyone. Yeah. So, and, and you do that by making the cost as little as humanly possible and the time to value as short as humanly possible, which I don't think we did a good job of explaining. But, and I wanna, I wanna mm -hmm. follow up on a, there was a survey we did, um, I'm gonna say four years ago, um, which was we wanted to ascertain the five biggest challenges organizations face when implementing MES, and, and we distilled them down to these five. So if you're, if I'm an organization and I wanna do a manufacturing execution system, and Sean, I wanna get your opinion here. Yeah. These are the five, what we've distilled as the five 
greatest challenges you're going to face. So number one is data integration. So MES solutions need to interact with various systems such as ERP, PLM, and other manufacturing software. Ensuring seamless data exchange between these systems can be complex and time consuming, especially if they use different data formats, communication protocols, or from different vendors. Right? We agree. That's a huge challenge. It can be. I I guess that's one where um, it comes down to organization. I suspect where we're going to agree the most is if you've not built your organization as an end user correctly so that traditional armed camps of IT over here and OT there and people doing stuff for ops, but ops feeling like it's being done to them. Right. I think in the healthiest organizations I've seen, they'd actually argue that data integration is less of a challenge once the humans learn to talk to each other because it's all very easy to translate. And, you know, there's been great examples over the years where, you know, people look at everything from regulatory pressure to, you know, some of the schemes that you use for e-commerce with trading partners and how quickly and easily you can sort of use examples of things people have solved and say, well, if you can exchange this data as the provider of milk to, I'm going to try and avoid manufacturer names, a company that makes chocolate, why is it so difficult for you to take a subset of that data and move it from this silo here into that silo there? Who writes Who writes the standard for the way that you format it? So interestingly enough, um, and, and again, this is a bit of a non sequitur, but uh, thinking of that integration, take a look at the EDI X25 standards for e-commerce. And the funny thing is, if you take a long, hard look, they map really closely to what B2MML looks like for us MES nerds when we think about first-generation message-based exchange. And the minute you've got somebody from a call it the customer service side of IT and somebody from the MES side of IT realizing that these are two different, you know, standards for structuring a message that are essentially identical in purpose and only different in labeling. Suddenly a whole bunch of those other questions about data integration get a lot easier to have because you've just, with that one example, you've demystified what they used to, uh, you've demystified something they can both understand in terms they, they can now both understand. And that means they're a lot more likely to be able to say, Okay, well, then what's different about, you know, exchanging a quality record from a, you know, standalone CMMS type system with an MES? What's different about getting underlying process parametric data into a format that an MES can actually look at it and say, I'll let the machine tell me whether or not my process is stable. I don't need a human to do it. Well, the problem is the challenge that most people face is that, and I would argue in the OT side, the biggest challenge on the OT side is that, you know, it, it's this old adage. You give you give the same functional specification or sequence of operations to ten different PLC programmers, oh, and yeah. you're gonna get you're gonna get ten completely different programs that yep. do exactly the same thing. Yep. And but the underlying parametric data that you talk about is a function of how they did it, not what they did. Right. Yep. So the format that it's in, the tag naming. The, mm-hmm. the which register I used in which register table is a function of what that programmer does. And oftentimes, you know, we used to make this joke in controls and you were a system integrator for a while. So you're familiar with this, you know, c- controls is the last group brought in. And, and whenever they're brought in, you're already two months behind schedule and they wanted everything done two weeks ago. Yep. And so depending on the skill sets in the company, they may not be people that think about data abstraction yep. and therefore it can be a real SOB to get them yep. thinking about, you know, structure and schema standards because to them, it's the machine to the supply chain guy. It's, is it predictable to the materials guy? It's did the supplier material perform and, you know, just to give people on, on the call and a, a little anecdote here, just to put, you know, <laughs> this is one of these areas we violently agree Walker. Um, 
and I'm going to not name names again, but a few years back, a, an automotive company was looking at deploying what I consider to be a weak model OEE solution into their stamping press area. It was a big plant, you know, so it was not a small job, but we, we went away, we did our homework, we took a look at it and said, okay, you know, to actually deploy the OEE part, some reporting and the like, you know, using the tool that, that you like, it's about a quarter million bucks. The kicker is that you're going to spend two million bucks doing PLC remediation. And explain to us what a light OEE model, yeah. like what that means. So when I when, yeah when I say a weak OEE model, I guess what I mean is is that it was a it was a platform that really only understood uh, call it first layer events right yeah. so so one one type of broad categories for downtime and waste it didn't really give you a way of establishing secondary causes and it certainly didn't give you a way of saying look if there might be smoking guns in the parametrics like if my cycle time on my stamping press is a little off. Maybe I'd like to look at things like oil pressure. Maybe I'd like to look at things like current draw on a motor. Maybe I'd like to look at vibration. So if you want, was a repository for the actual downtime and loss events and nothing else. So what, what you, a good example here, Zach, would be um, at a very simple level would be manufacturing apps by PTC, say five years ago. Manufacturing apps from PTC had a limited suite of machine states. In fact, and that's how it's storing it in the and, database. And so it's kind of it's kind of making so, your data useless. So down the road, kind of. It, it's a weak OEE model because first layer state, first off, was finite. There was no customization whatsoever. You had to you had to okay. choose from the option they had available. But what he's also referring to is second level. So that is where if a, if a state, then I can look somewhere else for a deeper cause. Yeah. Like right. cascading downtime and stuff like that, like among cells or just. Or well, even, within, even within a single machine, you might find that the real reason why there was a product jam was because a bottle was overfilled. Correct. Right? So if you don't if you don't have Got something that lets you look at all the things that might relate to the failure mode, you, you're still going to head start. Don't get me wrong. You know, first layer downtime. Then an operator would have to like customize that event. No. Yeah. Right. Or they'll oh. handwrite something down, and you get the handwritten version of the PLC code mask. Yeah, you get it. You get it as a comment. You get it as a comment on the report where yeah. down downtime is coalesced to this, but the comment tells you, yeah, that's not actually what it was. It was this other thing because right? the, yeah. the the OE model doesn't account for it the doesn't account for it. That's where the weak. That makes sense. So the second reason MES is hard is legacy systems. So. Yeah. Many manufacturing facilities have legacy systems and equipment that may not be compatible with modern MES solutions. I would argue, I mean, if you're still using hardware that's talking serial communication, I, I don't see it that often anymore. Um, I mean, at, at minimum, everyone's at least to the data highway plus level and, you know, you can gateway that. But let's, for the sake of argument, there are still facilities out there that are, that have basically no mechanism to talk to smart devices in the field. Um, that's true on the other side too. Uh, we're we're still, you know, God, I've got a customer who's running a uh, a deck. <laughs> They're trying to find a way to emulate an old Vax operating system so they can keep running something from an old deck system which supplemented a certain kind of mill. Yeah. So that legacy systems issues on both sides of the equation. I mean, I, I remember we, I I worked in steel a long time ago, right? That was my my third stop when I worked for the end users and. This is a perfect example of the challenges with legacy. We were using old Texas Instruments PLCs, mm -hmm. and the only mechanism we had in place to interface with those TIs was we had to install a Control Logics PLC, yeah. and then pair instead of rewriting all the logic because that would have been 
you know, n times a hundred, it was going to cost us n to just interpose all the events and you and use a control logics PLC to just capture the paralleled field connections and then yeah. write business logic. And that's literally how we acquired the data, you know, where yeah. that cost us say $80,000, but to do a complete rip and replace on the stacker, which is where we had yeah. two TI PLCs running this old $20 million stacker, th that was going to be like a $5 million, you know, project, right? Are so it was, was 20. Are you sure this was a long time ago, Walker? You could be describing something one of our team was looking at last week. <laughs> I, I have I have a question. But this was two, 2008. So for, you know, but not that long ago. Go ahead, Zach. Now I will say I do like I, I actually do like your comment like it was pretty uh, very nice like you guys are just talking at both ends of different the same ex like different extremes and like I think you guys agree more than you disagree. Well, the, there's so there is a thing that jumps out. Okay, so so from a theoretical level, I agree with Sean, but I deal more in just you know like the first thing that I thought about when he talked about you know an organization that. Um, if they approach it right, they build their facility right. Okay, then well, what happens in the in the case of M and A then, right? You know, my, my where they didn't have control over how it was constructed. Well, yeah. then you still have to have a solution without spending twenty million dollars. Yeah. Right? Like, right. The simple example was like, yeah, there's a lot of MESs that are off the shelf that are highly customizable, which kind of the original post kind of made it seem like that wasn't even a thing, right? So like. I, honestly, I, it does seem like to me like that was just a distillation of what your original but, what you said in the video but and let's, kind of hyperbolized for engagement. But, let's, but I do have a question, though. Well, hold on real quick. Let's let's yeah. use this example. You, you have a food and beverage background, right, Sean? So, yeah, yeah. Right. I became a food and bev guy because of all my well-known food and bev companies that made cars and steel and paper. <laughs> so we we're 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 just finishing up a, a large food and beverage MES transformation that um 40 facility 40 plants um i don't know how many employees i think it's ten thousand. yeah it's a lot it's it's a big with 40 facilities yeah. and the and and with our approach which you know which is built on this concept that you always end up building right yep. um that doesn't mean we're not buying off-the-shelf software we have you know we're using ignition we're using high bite we're using emqx mqtt brokers and then yep. we're interposing with some off-the-shelf software that they have the total spend for a, a organizational wide MES deployment for this customer has been a million dollars for 40, 40 facilities over a two year period, 20, 22 months. Okay. I, I did this a really long time and I, and, and I've done this a really long time and I know the, that those, the, those numbers are preposterous. What the 40, not the, not the, not the packaging. One, no, the, not the package. This the is 40? this is this is in. Uh, oh my god, that's insane! For this a is the million dollars. This is the bakery company. So this is a million no dollars total. Insane, it, total spend is a million dollars. I just looked at their account. So that's an eight-figure project. Yeah, yeah, it's an eight-figure project all day long. And my point was was the figures. the concept, and I think Sean and I agree here, especially on the data modeling piece. I think we definitely yeah. agree. Um, that that's the ingestion point. The data model that is the ingestion point of the data is the most important. That's the abstraction. That's the object that yeah. is repeatable. You got to do, do that somewhere. There are a few different way, ways and places you can do it. But if someone doesn't take that time to think about imposing a model around that, and the funny thing is, is what that actually means is they've stepped back and they've thought about <laughs> what is this process? What's worth knowing about it in terms of reference data? You know, mm -hmm. things that are removable about it. What's worth knowing about it in terms of variable data? 
And once I've defined that, and then the same concept, the same method of thinking should go around materials and, and actual production units, and even to some degree people and skills, if somebody's gone to that level of effort, then it actually becomes a lot easier to make the choice. So you can say, I'll have something on the edge like a high bite that does repackaging, even some pre-handling and pre-processing if the other parts of my stack are best served by that. And many of them really are, right? Again, I, I wear a certain logo near and dear to my heart. Doesn't take too, too much work to figure out which one it is. But right. if I take a look at a lot of the customers that, that have got other stacks, and if, you, if the right thing to do is always to gap fill and enhance rather than rip and replace, people who take that sort of data ops approach to the edge can solve a lot of heartache. And it's not just the mechanics of the tool. It's the fact that they actually sat down and said, and this is funny, I do want to come back to that whole question about what about the ERP model, because I actually think it's worth me explaining why I was such an undiplomatic, you know what? Yes. Normally, I'm really not. Normally, it takes two comments before I become a complete twit. But um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll come back. I'm going to I'll read your yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, your reply right right after yeah. this, your but, comment. But just, but, just to finish, but just to finish off that thought, you got to do that work somewhere or you do it the wrong way elsewhere. You either figure out model and where it should live or you write really bad code in your UX or you write really bad stored hey. procedures or the equivalent in the database. Agreed later. a thousand. Or, I, or, I argue, or. What I argue is, is the place to do that is right before the data gets to your unified namespace. You now, but but I also argue that what you should do is ingest it in the form it's in. So, I, if I've got two PLCs written by two PLC programmers yeah. that do exactly the same thing, yes, I should be able to navigate into my in my unified namespace, and I should be able to see the raw data structure from yeah. the edge device, yeah. of edge device one and two, and then the abstraction, the the model that I've created that I'm then going to map and abstract and normalize from those two completely different PLCs that serve the same function. I have one function. You keep knocking away the things where I thought we'd get to have a real fight. <laughs> um, <laughs> but let me say, so here was your reply to my comment, which was there's nothing in there that wouldn't fit within the order management, bomb material, route operation, and spec models in several decent MES platforms, systems. Yeah. The overlap parallelization aspects of their scheduling are similarly well solved by a number of FCS vendors. I'd argue that this customer can save a lot of ERP investment precisely by reverting to a normal ERP side footprint and taking advantage of the configurability of operational models and constraints in FCS MES combos. What I will say is this, and I didn't explain this, with this specific customer, they were in the process of deploying a off-the-shelf ERP. They had gotten all the quotes. They were looking at half million in licensing just for the ERP system. We did the full business for about $1 million. Yeah. So, and they would have been at, you know, let's say, you know, conservatively, $2 million total cost of ownership had they gone that route. Yeah. We're, we were able to do the whole business, not just the ERP layer, but the whole business for about $2 million. Now, granted, there's no vendor to go call to support it because it is built soup to nuts. It's in a common platform that is supported by a vendor, but yeah. it is built soup to nuts custom. Um, you continue. The uniqueness in this system is entirely in the visualization style, which is UNS to, you know, we're basically doing informative objects out of the unified namespace. And while one can argue whether it makes sense to bury unique IP in a highly tailored presentation layer, it's easily enough done. Some NES vendors even provide low-code tools for their own visualization elements, generally offering pre-built hooks to the reference spec data and event data in their own core. 
and also usually offering the option of going freestyle with HTML5 and various API tools for external data sets if desired. As far as the correlation of unit level process data to specific orders goes, that's not as commonly offered as standard, but it's out there in at least one really good MES solution. Let me say this, your second to the last paragraph there. I agree there are options for hooking into off-the-shelf solutions to do what we were doing. What I'm saying is, is the cost to benefit is, is, is such that you can't, that that's the thing that gets left behind because the value I get out of that integration isn't worth the time and the money I got to spend to get that integration, which is why we, we, we're, we preach the UNS concept so much that all data matters and that the big thing that you have to do is really? come up with a structure for your business, define all the functions of your business, and then define all the <laughs> operations of your business and create namespaces for them. Let me uh, go to this next piece and then I'll hand it over to you. So I, I replied and said, if we define MES as just the core four of OEE, downtime tracking, work orders, and scheduling, this is simply not true. There are no off-the-shelf MES systems that provide all MES capabilities for all businesses out of the box. And by the way, you did acknowledge that in your last sentence, yep. but I, yeah. I didn't really That's acknowledge okay. it. MES is always built. This is because when organizations are not constrained by the limitations of MES or ERP when they are defining workflows, they go where the efficiency can be captured. They pay no attention to clean event triggers or encoded state registers or even linear manufacturing steps. And what I mean by that is B doesn't always start after A, but yep. sometimes it does, right? So, and if you treat A and B as separate objects and not one that inherits from the other, that's fine. Right, you can have B start whenever you want it to, and A start whenever you want it to. But not everyone does it that way, which is what you're saying. No off-the-shelf system is developed for manufacturers to configure their operations as they are, as they are, rather than as the platform expects them to be. Come on the podcast and let's debate it. So I'll turn it over to you. We had two more. We had, yeah, we had two more exchanges, um, and, and I will read those here in a second. But um, I'll, I'll turn it over to you for your comment. Yeah, yeah, and I think that this this is why I wanted to come back to the the original thing that that you know, in all fairness, probably set me off worse than it should have. Which is, what what really is the difference between the way a good MES lets you define your operation versus what's in the ERP? And again, I've, I've done a bit of homework and, and listened to a few more of, of your podcasts and looked at some of your YouTube content, and there are a couple of things that, that that I do see a little differently, right? There, there's been statements made that effectively, if the ERP or the PLM has got a defined, you know, bill of material and route structure, that that's too rigid. And I would argue that, yep, that can be true in the ERP, but to your point, uh, you know, my view of MES was really that it was born precisely to say, look, if in general, I can't assemble a car till I've got a frame and an engine and quarter panels and, and the like, there, there's absolutely some rigidity there. It's, it's really hard to, you know, make the chair first and then, you know, build the car around it. However, the two things that were the back of my head were the whole point of MES, and, and again, I, I say this as an OG, right? I found out the hard way that what we'd written for, for the steel company back in the 90s was an MES when someone told us we'd written one, to which I cleverly replied, we wrote a what? Right. 
Um, so, you know, go, and I'm told that the term was coined in 1993. So that kind of, you know, for all of those of you who don't know me, my beard is white, not just gray. <laughs> um, but um, so for me, there was that whole issue of, well, the whole point is actually to be able to say, what if there should be parallelism? What if there should be some ability to flexibly sequence things so that you can get sub-assembly here that then synchronizes back to a main assembly? Or even things like, what about coordinating make-ready work around thin film extrusion and printing and conversion? So the whole point of the MES was to say, yeah, in, in, from a costing perspective, this is very linear. In terms of the final good, whether you're fabricating, assembling, or going through some other kind of process, there may well be a, a finish that obviously has to come after the start. But a good MES would let you say, no, no, I can do this in parallel. I can do this as a group. I can create this as a whip pool and draw from it and differentiate further downstream. And the second thing that's always at the back of my head, because I usually have this argument with accountants and finance people, mm -hmm. we all know that to a finance person, and, and forgive me, any of you who may be on, um, bless you for being here and learning new things if you are. There's actually one member of our community who is a finance guy, and he, there's only one of them. So. All right. Well, there you go. But uh, I, I studied accounting and finance at night school for three years because I got tired of CFOs killing my deals because I couldn't communicate to them why they were worth doing. And what I learned was, and let's pick on food again, packaging is a cost center, right? Now, to people who are engineers and MES people, packaging is somewhere between three and 17 or 18 individual assets, each of which has its own unique contributions to make to losses for quality, losses for downtime, some of which have a contribution to make to the question of optimal sequencing and scheduling. So... If I think about why MES was born, it was also to break that rigidity, to let somebody say, packaging is a cost center into which I consume labor and aggregate chunks of material. That may not even understand the fact that I've got N packaging lines, let alone that each of those lines may have a slightly different configuration be good for making different things. So fair or not, part of why, guess what, set off my, my bullet a red flag reflex was, hang on, MES was born precisely to decouple from the over-rigidity of MRP and ERP. And it was probably just the awkwardness of the phrasing that caused me to be rude <laughs> when I picked up that gauntlet. Well, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, and I, I say this all the time, that it, it, it is about how much we spent and how much we made. Right. I mean, at, at all of it. Why do I calculate TEEP? Why do I calculate OEE? Why do I care what a cost center is? Why do I not? It's all it boils down to how much did I spend and how much did I make. By the way, this is the reason I get so frustrated with the ESG arguments because I'm like, <laughs> I, you know, I, as much as I think ESG from social a social credit point, yeah, from a, as much as I think that ESG is from a philosophical perspective is a good thing for humanity, mm -hmm. from a from a business perspective, unless you somehow tie sustainability to the bottom line, then <laughs> no business actually cares about sustainability, right? It's the same thing with safety. No business actually cares about safety in except for how much it might cost them if they are not safe, right? Yeah. So it, it is about money. It is about revenue and cost, right? Yeah. What I've always argued is this. Everything you need to know about your business is on the plant floor. There yep. is nothing you buy. There's nothing you, no money you spend in a manufacturing operation that isn't designed to support operations in some way, whether it's two levels above me, it's still there to, to now in vertically integrated businesses where the link in the supply chain from here to here is kind of fuzzy. That yep. can be a fuzzy st statement. But in manufacturing, 
everything supports operations. So why is it that our data acquisition and our structure does not start there? I, I just, I've never understood why it doesn't start on the plant floor and then have our business systems be a reflection of reality instead yep. of our business systems being a structure that we are asking our operations to try and fit into. I've never understood that for the life of me, which yeah. brings me to this question, Sean. Can you get, give me an example? Uh, you know, you had said where a good MES would be able to do this. Could you give me an example so that you don't have to pick just one? Can yeah. you give me two or three examples of what you meant by good MES? Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> I really didn't want to come on and chill. Uh, right. You're throwing me a bone. Okay. So for those of right. you who take a look at Novotech and you clock the GE digital connection, you'll spot prophecy plant applications. And if I'm honest, God, 17 years ago, I'm old enough I can say things like that, and that's only about half the career now. So about 17 years ago, I was working for one of those SIs, and it was actually an SI that had given birth to one of the OEE packages. <clears throat> and prior to that, I'd worked with a different one. Prior to that, I'd had my own MES business. So by that point in my career, I had played with Data Suite, Intrac, Camstar, um, Teradyne, Bespoke, right? By definition, we wrote an MES of our own. That started as a custom project. One of the SIs I worked for had delivered, by the time I joined them, over 60 million bucks worth of bespoke MES to certain businesses that shall remain nameless. So I'd had a hand in a few, and I came at it with, you know, the, the, the abstract data modeler's view from a finite scheduling and MES background. And then one fine day, a chap named Carson Drake from Gray Matter Systems was giving a bit of a demo on plant applications from GE. And I literally sat there and went, uh, you know, holy beep. I haven't seen something that elegant in terms of abstracting away from the mess at the edge to a very flexible, definable set of event models for production consumption, for defining specifications that relate to products and process performance, and essentially allowing somebody to compose <clears throat> a plant model where you can be self-measuring wherever there's automation data to flow that gives you good enough places to hook in your PLM or ERP master data. And it did it in a way that was just, you know, I'll quote a colleague of mine who, who you know, <laughs> worked for a well-known food company in the States, then went to work for GE alongside me, and then went to work for one of my former employers. So we're doing a job for a company in the business and it's gonna cost about 3 million bucks. By the way, when I do that, I mean cigarettes, not weed. I realize it's been a few years. Um, and he said, it's gonna cost about 3 million bucks using this other company's platform. If I was doing it with plant apps, I could do it in less than a year for 800K. So uh, I, I don't dislike plant apps. There are a couple of problems that I have with plant apps. Number one is cost. So Sorry, I gotta roll up my sleeves here. Okay. So, <laughs> cost. so I we we did a, so plant apps was one of this this bakery that we went against. Yeah, was uh, plant apps was who we went against. We went against yep. GE. Okay, mm -hmm. um, and and there was a yeah, and they you, you know who I'm talking about. I probably do, but I'm not going to say anything out loud in case I'm wrong. I'm not that close to the American side of the organization right. anymore. So what? Here's what happened. They 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 come back. The customer comes back a couple of years ago and says, GE has presented X. Here's what they want to do. Okay, uh, it's going to cost significantly more than than what you guys, yep. you guys proposed and yep. um, tell us the reasons you shouldn't do it. And I, I don't want to take shots. By the way, I love plan apps. Let me say something here. Uh, I love plan apps. There are a couple of issues like scenarios where I wouldn't use it. 
Yeah. But in terms of a, an MES platform, I actually think it's a great platform. I think yeah. it costs too much. That's my problem with it. That's it. Okay. Um, but there is a unique situation that I you you would have pro, a hot problem dealing with, and that is um, one of the things I tried to do in Plan Apps was I tried to do an example of a a process that I had that was a bulk process that took twenty minutes to go from in ingestment point at the, the first cell of the line to the stacker. Okay, it took twenty minutes. There was a bulk process, a mixing bulk, and then there was a basically a cutting process, and then there was a batch packaging process. Yeah. You had multiple work orders running on that line at any given time. Yeah. The problem is, is there was no rising edge of when the work order changed. So plan apps could handle could handle multiple work orders on the same production line yep. as long as multiple work orders on the same production line was consistent. That is the rising edge was consistent. And this wasn't, you, you could have the previous line could be, could be 80% of the way through the previous production order could be 80% of the way done. And the new one started, or it could be 30% of the way done and a new one started. And so being able to associate counts and state to the correct work order was yeah. problematic in that unique case. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Here's the issue. The issue is with not just, and I don't want to take a shot of plan apps again. I love it. Okay. My point is, is that what I, what we advocate for to customers is, um, why does MES exist? You brought this up, right? MES, the reason we call a thing MES, all MES is is a suite of functions. That's all it is, right? Yep. And the reason we call a manufacturing execution is because of the way we used to do things, right? Yeah, yeah we used to only count the beans after the fact, and we used to do all the testing after the fact, and yes. up until that point, it was paper and prayer that, got, that built us a bridge. So why is it we don't go down to the floor, yeah. collect all of the vents and abstract the functions as they happen. That's always been my argument. My argument has been put everything in a unified namespace and then I add, I write an MES function that consumes data, creates information, publishes back to the unified namespace. That's my point. The issue, I, I, by the way, I love plan apps. I'm definitely not going to bash it. If you had brought up, say, yeah, I like Traxxas as well. But if you were going to bring up, say, PTC solution or something, I'd be, come on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I, no, I like sure. I, out there, I, I want to give off the shelf solutions some credit. Yeah. Uh, I, I like G's plan apps a lot. Uh, I really like um, Tulip. Tulip is not really an off the shelf MES solution, but it has off the shelf MES capabilities. I'm a huge yeah. fan of Tulip, by the way. Yeah. Um, I like. Um, well, I'll leave that one off. I like. Yeah, let, 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 let me let me throw a thought at you because this is this is this is one of my personal flaws. If you were to line up a bunch of my colleagues and say, "What is it Sean does that really pisses off customers?" <laughs> even when they know his heart's in the right place. Yes. Okay? And uh, I'm hoping some of them are on and they chime in right now to see if what I say jives. And it would be sometimes I try too hard to look a little too far ahead, and I can be a bit of a jackass about it. So what do I mean by that? Well, that makes you a good architect then. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, live in, in real time, we're we're doing a, a rollout. Um, the solutions arm of our business in the UK is doing a rollout for a company in the food sector where two years ago they said, we want no EE solution. And I said, that's great. Then what? And they got mad and they had every right to be. I was in a mood that day. So I, I wasn't I wasn't diplomatic because they, they'd said some again, they'd said some things where they were oversimplifying their own usage of the tool. Right. And this because was important. Because what they want is a function of what they know right now. 
bang on, right? And you know, once somebody starts doing something, then they they be they're going down a maturity curve, and then they go, shoot, maybe I would have asked for something different if I had known. You know, if if my business is digging holes and I'm the best at doing that with a shovel, the minute I know a JCB digger exists, my understanding of what I need changes. But if I don't know it exists, I want a bigger shovel. Exactly. So I asked him then what, and um, and there was a reason. There was a classic disconnect between business leadership and a couple of their. I'll call them plant managers for lack of a better term, although their responsibilities are a bit broader. Well, once we've got the OE, then we'll know our top 10 reasons for downtime. And I said, okay, then what? Right. Well, yeah, but then we'll know. And I said, how do you envision using that? And uh, they came up with some answers that were good and some that weren't. But I said, look, ultimately what you're, what you're, what you're telling me is you haven't thought ahead to the fact that in your business, raw materials are probably a bigger problem than the underlying maintenance and care and feeding of your assets. So if you buy a one-trick OEE solution, you'll feel great for about six months. And then you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to try and bend that OEE solution out of shape and start adding things to its data model that were never intended to be there. Great. Or if you're actually, you know, a real, really good at looking in the mirror and going, hey, that was actually a great learning experience and it's okay to throw it out if it makes more sense to find something that helps us drive execution from which the metrics are a byproduct. And I think that in a lot of cases where, where a, a full solution can seem expensive is if you get an opinionated twit like me going, I hear what you're saying about today and tomorrow. What I'm worried about is I'd rather put you on a path to look after next week, next month, next year. Now, you don't need to buy every, every piece of that solution today. But by God in heaven, you should work backwards from where you're headed, not work up from where you are. Well, I, you know, I said, I, here's something, here's something no one's ever heard me say publicly before. I do this actually when I'm talking to clients. Um, government makes laws. They don't get rid of laws. So every year we add new laws yeah. and we never, we never get rid of any old ones. Right. Yeah. Okay. Do we have lots of old laws? that we could get rid of that they don't even apply anymore. Like in New York state, it's against the law to walk in front of your horse. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a law on the books that yes. says you can't walk in front of your horse in New York state. We don't mm -hmm. even use the canal system anymore. So it's pointless. They even have that. Right. Well, the, I, I'm not in New York, I'm in Texas, but I grew up there, <laughs> but the same thing happens in digital infrastructure in digital transformation. Clients never think about the fact that I'm only, I may build a solution to solve a problem and never need that solution ever again. Okay. In, in England, you can't carry a salmon suspiciously. You, you, um, and what, and so one of the things that I've, I often talk to customers about is you may build a solution to a problem you have. And then once you solve the problem, you don't need the solution anymore. Yep. Okay. And have you given that any consideration? Have you, have you thought about it in any way, shape, or form? And a lot of this has to do with like stuff you do on the edge with green grass, lambda, that kind of stuff. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. at the end of the day, at the end of the day, solutions are not finite. They're, they're not eternal, right? They're, they evolve. Organizations evolve. And we talk about organizations, what you want as a function of what you know. Let me say this. In, when we build MES, if we use an off-the-shelf MES module, and sometimes we do, I would say... 40% of our MES is off the shelf and 60% is built. And I would yeah. say there's never a scenario. And when I say MES, I mean functions. I mean, yeah. in, in, there are hundreds and hundreds of possible functions in MES. Yeah. When you're building an MES, what is, is that a, is that a, a fair, say you're obviously plan apps is your, 
Yeah, your... one of my, it is one of my favorites, um, but I'll, I'll answer it this way. So funnily enough, um, one of my colleagues, you know, we were chatting about this coming up and uh, he asked me why I had such firm opinions. And to be fair, you know, I've got other colleagues that are like, are you sure you're not just an old fart who's married to what he learned 30 years ago? So, you know, you do what you do. You go have a walk and you look at the trees and you listen to the snowfall. And then I, so I came back to the fellow and I said, well, the, this is why some of my opinions exist. And he said, great, say that again, I'm going to record it. And we're going to do a follow-up on that because there might be something useful. So one of the key things that came out was the data plumbing is the most important thing, right? Because in, in my experience where customers of all levels of maturity want to dig in and argue is on what they think of as reporting and what they think of as UX. Now, why does that matter? Because I think a lot of the frustration around, you know, can you ever get an off-the-shelf MES that fits the customer? I think that the smoke and the noise that comes from people being upset about, oh, the out-of-the-box report isn't great, or I don't like the way you offer me this standard function for reviewing whether or not the quality parameters are healthy. I would prefer it if this column was on the left and if the background was pink. And I've had a, I've had a payment held up for reasons that were no more serious than that. Um, I think that that can distract from the fact that, in my view, when you buy the right MES package for the customer, and right means two things. Do they have enough holes that they shouldn't be buying point solutions to fill and then just integrating around that through whatever method, right? There have been a lot of customers I've talked to and then said, you don't need a planned apps or any MES. What you need is a point solution here and some means of creating what we would now call a unified namespace to support reporting and analysis. But when somebody has enough need, then I'll look at two things. Can I give them a 50 to 60 to 70% head start based on the strength of the data model and its ability to handle the work processes? You know, So for why I love plant apps, it handles rework. It understands parent-child relationships. You don't lose your traceability. So if I'm in a highly regulated sector, I can have all that flexibility of, whoops, I buggered up this batch, but I can dilute it through the next 20 and I can still trace back to raw material. So if I've got a certain kind of end user and that kind of thing matters, what I'm looking at is the data model in the database engine and the way the transactions are created and logged. And if that hangs together, what I'm really after is 60-ish percent head start compared to if I had to sit down and build it myself from scratch. Now, we both know enough about plant apps. Now it does a nice job of letting you have a data mess on the PLC side. So it gives me leverage that other MESs don't. Correct. I had one customer that uh, looking at making two changes to the way to a report they wanted to run, single business unit, 20 factories using plant apps, 20 using their homegrown MES, which had the same sort of architecture and data integration to the shop floor methods as a lot of others, 2 million bucks to upgrade their custom or, or enhance it, 80 grand, including putting in the sensor in one of the factories that didn't have that for the 20 factories with plant apps. So I would argue, again, if you buy the right tool, you get leverage on cleaning up and, and, and coping with the mess at the edge. And if I've got that, <laughs> customers, if you're listening, forgive me for what I'm about to say. I don't care if you're unhappy with the standard UX because I can resolve that with a low-code tool. I can, I can resolve reporting with the tool of your choice because my core data is clean from an event perspective and from an audited perspective. And if it's clean from those perspectives, I can build whatever the heck you want over here. And if I can get you that by also saving you the need to reprogram every PLC and SCADA to present data perfectly, it's a win. And again, now that we've chatted, I get more of what, what you say when you mean build. And I think we'd agree that you're never gonna get 100% fit out of the box, 
But by God, if I can get a 60 to 70% head start, and if I'm dealing with a customer that doesn't have a terribly deep and broad skill set in data architecture, communications, integration, I'm better off giving them that prefab house than telling them, here's what a digger is for, dig a foundation. Here's what a concrete mixer is for, pour the foundation. Here's what framing and, and you know, well, heck, heck with framing. Here's what sawmills look like so you can cut your tree down and, you know, get yourself some two by fours and well, two by Let me ask you this. If you think that way, and I believe, I believe you when you say that you do, and I, I want to add one quick thing. I have never, the, 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 to me, the platform is not important. The, what's important is how the platform um, functions. So is yeah. it, does it use open protocols? Does it, does it, does it prioritize an event-based engine as opposed to transactional or a yeah. poll response-based engine, right? Um, um, is at its base level, is it easy to work with? That is, I can teach somebody in two hours how to build a visualization from data I can point to. Yeah. And, and But at the high level, is there no limit to what it is you can build in that platform? That's basically how yeah. I evaluate platforms, right? Let me ask you this. If you think the way that you think, then why are you not an ignition guy? Because you're speaking, <laughs> you talk, you talk like an ignition guy. I mean, you really do. Like ignition, and I, by the way, I, I get it. You, you know, I don't want to put you in a weird position I, um, with, with the plan apps thing. I, and let me say this again. I like plan apps. For yep. me, when I look at cost, total cost to ownership, yep. it's too, I, I, I can never end up making the recommendation because it costs too much. Right. And, and I think that's a function of where the customer may be on a curve. But I'll, let me answer that question point blank. Because so what you're, saying, you're saying, what you're saying is, is that you're paying at, with plan apps, you're you're paying money that you would pay five years from now. Now, no, and what I'm saying, like, and you're paying you five still, years later. You're you not. Paying. Be, you should still be able to stage any program so that you're getting genuine payback quickly off okay. the right size investment at the right minute. What I will say is that you are, you know, uh, you get a lot of infrastructure under the bonnet early that you can then choose to use or not. Whereas with a lot of others, you get what you get the minute you get it. And I will say without picking on any particular company, but I've seen a few names go by, we're winning deals back because as the customer's understanding of their own actual needs grew, they went, shit, I'm in a corner. Pardon my French. Um, and that's where we're having people come back and say, yeah, I thought this was a great idea, but now I understand how to tell you I need a JCB digger, not just a big shovel or a shovel and a rake. And that's arguably, you know, and I'm not kidding when I say one of the things I do that can annoy customers is go, but dude, what about five years from now? We need to think about that now. Otherwise you will spend money twice or possibly three times. And whether that's ripping something out that was too light or whether it's trying to bend an imperfect solution and badly out of shape. And then just to put some context where that usually happens is around things like whether or not materials themselves are properly characterized and whether or not you can actually apply, you know, process center lining and process stability measurement, not just basic execution and some of the performance metrics, right? There's lots of good packages out there that can fit in around the edges of some SPC here and, and some whip execution or OEE there. But if someone has big enough holes, and, and again, this goes back to when Carson did that demo. Carson, I know you might be on, so this is all your fault. Uh, when he did that demo, I genuinely, as a data nerd, went, I can't do that with almost any other solution I've seen. And I've had a hand in building a few, and I've had a look under the bonnet of a fair number. And that's why I let GE steal me. 
<laughs> they said, we see growth. And, and I'm sitting there as an MES nerd going, you're damn right you do, because what you've got is something under the bonnet that is an unfair advantage over most of the other competitors if you're looking at the customer over the life cycle of their How supply chain integration and continuous improvement program. So I'll ask, let me ask this one more time. And this is probably the, the as controversial as I'll get. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to be, um, I reserve the right not to answer. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is the, you know, this, uh, company yeah. that we were working with, yeah. they, The total cost, like the plant apps cost relative to what we spent, it was like a nine to one delta. Yeah. It was nine, nine million versus 870,000. And I think we've done 130,000. Total, total delivery, including services. Right. Oh, so yeah, TCO, TCO support, right? Now, that doesn't mean that for $9 million, I'm not going to get a good solution, right? It's not. But if I can get the same solution for a million, why am I going to, or if I'm, if I'm going to get the same functions, let's not say same solution, but yeah. if I'm going to get the same functions for a million, why am I going to spend 9 million? And now I know, and I don't expect you, but you're saying that depends on where the customer is on a curve of like their sure. technological capability. Like, so like I know the customer is like, not they're yeah, savvy, but this is different. Know. If Walker is saying, you know, oh, look, I mean something, yeah. Walker's saying that it, that apples to apples, if I need it to do X and both do X and one costs me, you know, 11 pence and the other one costs me a pound, why the hell would I pay a pound? That's a fair question. And, and unfortunately the only answer I can give is without really understanding that, right. that footprint and what the customer's after. Uh, the one thing I will say is it is with, with any application, it's entirely possible to bring the wrong methods to bear. I don't believe you guys would do that because of the way right. that you think about modeling and data abstraction. Right. But I've had the opposite experience, you know, where, where you know, setting aside the one of the established install base, I think about when my colleague went to do that other project and he said, I can do it for less than a third of the money and, and less than half the time. So for me, I cannot believe that there wasn't just some sort of misreading of how to apply the tool or whether or not I think the, be a mismatch. and again I, it's not fair you know because you don't know the details of the project so it's not like you can't speak to the details right but yeah. the I want to ask two questions and we'll call it a we'll call it a day the, well, the first I still I have a, I have a question too All right well you uh, let me say this one thing I, I think where the height of the cost was the licensing there were I mean the, the licensing alone was nearly a million dollars. The proposal was nearly a million. Whereas the licensing for our solution ended up being, it was in the hundred, you know, 200,000. I don't remember what it was, but it, it was a couple hundred thousand dollars. There was a, there was like a 4X cost on licensing. But again, that may not always, it's not always going to be 4X. It really depends on architecture, right? Yeah. So that was the first piece. The second piece was, I know there was a ton of engineering that was having to go into data abstraction. I know, yeah. and, and, and I, and I know for us, data abstraction wasn't that problematic because of the approach we were taking to yeah. ingest all raw and then use the same abstraction model. So I think maybe that maybe this is a, a case where it's not a fair comparison, but that's the first thing. Maybe. The second thing is this, would you describe your general approach to MES or the way you recommend customers to approach MES is that you start out with a platform for solving problems and then you build business functions. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that that's probably not a bad way of putting it. I guess if I was going to okay. restate it, I'd say I want to know what you're trying to accomplish because if somebody, uh, meaning the end user's business, because if somebody says to me, my goal is product and process innovation, you know, my goal is supply chain agility, you know, minimizing the amount of cash tied up in inventory and getting rid of, you know, expedites. You often will apply the same tools, but with different emphasis and different nuance compared to someone who just says, "Hey, I'm I'm just a I'm I'm just the I'm I'm the lowball producer of commodity product." Right. So I always start there, because that the strategy for me is going to be what dictates what are the things that they may not know how to think of, but that I can then look at all the experience and say, "Well, here's where your ah, but did you think about uh, did you think about uh, did you think about comes into play," and that's where you can end up saying, "Well, you know, yeah." If you think all MESs are alike, and I've got customers who thought that way. Yeah, they're, they're, most of them do. <laughs> and, 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 you know, to be fair, there's there's all of us vendor side people use the same words to describe right. things that are actually very different under the bonnet sometimes. Yes. Um, so if you think they're all the same, then it gets really easy to kind of tune out and it requires somebody to kind of say, well, hang on a minute. If your game is product and process innovation, then you need the ability to take a recipe from a lab or, or from an idea in a, in, a, in a scientist's head and define it in manufacturing terms and then relate it to existing manufacturing units and processes quickly and easily. And that's a very different game that you're going to accomplish with a tool like plant apps compared to something which is only focused on whip execution. It right. doesn't really think about detailed specs and process. Yeah, we, we just, we just did this with a life sciences company that they're the, when uh, our architect presented to this life sciences company in their PMDM area, which is their research and development area, they, we had fully integrated the entire stack of data. So from, from enterprise, cloud, ERP, historian, um, ex manufacturing execution, all the way down to the plant layer, they thought we were just going to be integrating with the historical data in their OSI Pi database. When yeah. they saw that all data had been consumed, ingested, and in many cases already transformed. They yeah. couldn't believe that that's what was done in the proof of concept. They were like, how, wait, every other vendor we brought in or every other approach that had, that we, that was attempted didn't get only provided a fraction of what you did there. And what I said was the, the platform we're using and the strategy is what makes it different. We operate under these concepts that all data matters. Okay, and you make no assumptions about how it'll be consumed. Worry about consumption later. First yeah. thing you have to do is acquire and model, right? It's yeah. connect, yeah. collect, store, analyze, visualize. That's what yeah. you all right, Zach, go ahead and uh, I'm sure you're not looking at our product wheel that we yeah. use, or cons not product wheel per se, but sort of a conceptual wheel. Our marketing team came up with something that's very similar. Well, so let, me, let me say one other thing, real quick in that, in that implementation, um, the we do integrate with GE plan apps, by the way. So there is, it is a, it is a synergy. There is, there are scenarios where plan apps is in there. I like plan apps. I, I don't want anyone to go away from this, this podcast thinking I don't like plan apps. I do. I just think cost is a problem is problematic. Would, you, would it be fair to say that you don't view plan apps as a competitor, but you view it as a node in the ecosystem? Yeah, I would definitely say that I don't see it as a competitor. I view it as a node. Go ahead, Zach. All right. Question, buddy. All right so. No, I really like this conversation and the comments like are they are agreeing that this is they want to see more of this type of open conversation and dialogue. So my question is on the so when you're talking about the finite scheduling thing, I couldn't help but think of the example or the riddle like where you have three burgers that you're trying to cook on a grill that can only hold two burgers <laughs> and each side takes five minutes to grill and you got to bo grill both sides. Finite scheduling is you grill it in 15 minutes, right? right? 
So the question of finite scheduling, like how do you see, I mean, it's 2023, we can't have a podcast without talking about chat GBT or AI. Like how do you see AI actually being implemented within the area of finite scheduling, being able to find these um, scheduling optimizations and yeah. See, it's interesting because uh, algorithmically, algorithmically, they teach kids things in second year university that we that we found out again by accident that we were pioneering. I kid you not, I had a Penn State U professor. We actually had a garage business. Okay, we were. I tell people, I dropped out of uni, joined the family software business. I'm like Bill Gates, but without the billions. Um, and we had a guy knock on our door and he says, I understand you guys have done some work with genetic algorithms for search space reduction in the finite scheduling realm. And we're, yeah, who are you? And he said, I'm Dr. Lou Hafer. And I'm like, okay, nice to meet you. Why are you here? He says, nobody's done this before. It's supposed to be impossible. Um, so I haven't looked that hard. So the thing with AI, I think it's different maths right? And, and bearing in mind, I'm more of a data modeler than an algorithmic guy. So I may say things that mathematicians in the audience will laugh at. Uh, and well, yeah, no, no judgment. Just we want to hear what your thoughts but are. I, I do just think that it is different math because at the end of the day, we're okay. So short, shorthand answer, again, apologies to people from other from from many scheduling vendors. Most finite scheduling systems are not really terribly algorithmically driven. They're using a simplistic calculation engine that basically says, show me the due dates for all my products and then let me use due date as the determinant of how to calculate backwards and create the least amount of lateness in my schedule. Most of them don't actually have the plumbing to say, if I've got 23 extruders and six of them can do a maximum thickness or maximum gauge on the bubble I want to blow of eight millimeters, but four of them can only do four millimeter, and some of them can only handle this much recycled content, but others can handle this. And if I can actually change my base resin blend and additives to get the same physical properties uh, out of different extruders with different ratios, and, 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 and oh, by the way, if I blow a J tube versus a C tube, I can actually convert both to this kind of product, but not that. Most finite scheduling systems can't solve that algorithmically. That's why I'm saying wouldn't an NLM, a natural language model, be able to take what you just said and, and incorporate it into the schedule. I don't know if like an NLM like could do that terribly well, because fundamentally what you're trying to do is to convert the product characteristics and the machine capabilities into something that can be driven more mathematically from an algorithmic perspective. And so that's why the genetic algorithms essentially said, if I start with an infinite search space, the minute I put one thing into the schedule, I've just cut my infinity at least in half. The minute I try, and again, I'm gonna again with the way the algorithms work, is they start off in number right, right. It's sort of like uh, you're scoring uh, the health, right? Am I am I getting a sequence that that I'm minimizing change over when I put the second job here? If this is more survivable because of its health score, then I'm gonna keep following that path. This one is less survivable underneath a, a threshold, so I'm gonna kill that off and put my processing to further this exploration, it's a little different. Right, because mathematically what you're saying is almost like the traveling salesman problem. Like it's an infinitely problem that computers would spend billions of years to try to solve. Is that what you're like, is that what you're saying? Finite scheduling and, is and that was, problem. And it, it, it's not entirely that, but you're not wrong, right? That was, the, that was the use case that people held up. It is a variation of the traveling salesman problem. It's just, I'm not sure that natural language models are, are the gonna be okay. one that solve because Walker, you have any thoughts? Yeah, let me... works better on numbers, and that's why I'm not sure about natural language models. If you can create numerical relationships between a product characteristic and a machine capability, you get faster math. 
I I've been testing some of this with ChatGPT. Um, and what it requires, and I'm only using ChatGPT right now, and what it requires is that I give ChatGPT the constraints. Yeah. So one of the most invaluable, one of the most important lessons anyone can learn with ChatGPT, here's a little insight into our ChatGPT workshop next week. One of the very first things I'm going to talk about is stop using it like Google. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, ChatGPT <laughs> is treat ChatGPT like the smartest person you've ever known in your entire life. And what you want to do is you want to narrow down ChatGPT's vision yeah. to only the things you want to talk about. So you tell ChatGPT who it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you tell ChatGPT what you are is going to act as a model, my supreme scheduler, okay? And here are the constraints of scheduling. Then you can feed it language variables and parameters that which it will run through its constraints and give you a recommended adjustment. Okay, you can do that. I've been testing it. It works fairly well. It's still early. I see a place for NLP, but I, I don't think, I think the technology is moving so fast. We're never going to have the point where you're going to input the variables yeah. and the parameters. You're not going to give it the constraints and get, because the solution gonna, is going to plug in natively somewhere. Yeah. I, I want to close, I want to close with this here. I want to read my uh, one last thing that I think kind of summarizes, which was, when I find, you know, Sean graciously said that he would come on the podcast and tee it up. He said, go ahead and tee it up. And I said, before he said that, I said, come on the podcast and ch challenge any of my premises. Yeah. You will not be able to provide an off the shelf solution that doesn't require the client to roll back that which gives them their competitive advantage in service of fitting into the solution. If I add in the caveat there without some level of customization or or forward thinking where you're prioritizing raw events from the edge then sean and i are speaking the same we're speaking the same language with that qualifier so yeah. why because manufacturing operations are not linear this is a really important point for everyone who's out here right even linear manufacturing operations are not linear yes you can't build a car without an engine or a chassis or a frame but there are hundreds and thousands of steps between the creation of those sub-assemblies and the assembly of the car, right? So, and those and those steps are not linear. There are elements that are linear, but manufacturing operations are never purely linear, especially when we look at the ancillary um, steps on the on the outside of the manu uh, manufacturing operations. They are not predefined. They are modeled on variable conditions that coalesce many events into one outcome, which is producing goods. The formulation of which are pre-modeled, but not always predictable. All MES solutions are built the same way. I cannot stress this enough. Every MES solution is built exactly the same way. They have a master data model definition in the background. You create instances. You have event tracking, transaction storage. You have post-processing. You have visualization. You got reporting. That's every MES system, no matter what function you're using. By the way, that's lots of software, too. You could obviously say that's what software does. So in order for an off-the-shelf solution to deliver without asking clients to fit their round peg into the platform square hole, the solution must be an event-driven ORM that starts with object and model creation. And that doesn't exist in the market. Why? Because MES isn't a set of capabilities. It's a quilt made up of a client's specific needs. The ORM vendor can't predict the capabilities for every client. That's the technical reasons all MES are built, with a caveat here. You know, Sean and I agree in that statement. I mean, in, in fact, we both agree that everything starts with raw data being modeled for ingestion into enter in functional capability, right? Yeah. 
at the end of the day, you would agree that you and I both agree in those elements. Okay. Yeah. Let me clarify here. You can buy off the shelf MES and then still achieve what it is I'm talking about. What I'm arguing is if you buy off the shelf, you're not just buying it off the shelf. You are extending. And, and in most cases, you're getting only about 40%, in my opinion, whenever we do it, you're getting 40% of what you need off the shelf. Yeah. But some, in most cases, that for the, the price you're paying for that 40% ends up costing you much longer in the long run because you have to fit the round peg into the square hole in order to get that 40%. That is, you have to meet that platform's structural data model, the way it structures events, the way it plans to ingest. I will say this, and I will give Sean credit here, of all the off-the-shelf solutions outside of Tulip, uh, plant applications from GE is the most raw in its ingestion format. That is, it doesn't require a lot of formatting of data to be consumed into the platform um, in order to be stored as events. Um, and as opposed to, say, if you look at modules you buy for ignition, you have to highly format that data before you can yep. store it in an MES yeah. data store. And that, and that makes it pretty common with yep. a lot of others. And I, and I would argue that probably <laughs> where where leverage can be found is if, if that MES data model is reasonably abstract. And again, I think specification definition is the other area where a lot of MESs fall down because they, they try too hard to have an explicit, fully encapsulated quality event or failure event, they don't necessarily think in terms of, hang on, I just want to measure something. I want to define what's worth measuring, abstract that away from the way I measure it so that I can choose. Here it's from a historian variable. Here it's coming direct from a SCADA. Here it's coming from an MQTT feed. Here it's a human entering it manually via an iPad. And then I encapsulate. And if I've got a good product, there's already pre-built things that say, because of this event here, there's an implication for fitness for intended purpose, quarantine the product. Because of this event here, there's an implication for an unplanned downtime that will last for a while. You might want to create an alert that goes to this user identity. Yep. The more abstract under the bonnet the actual event models are and the spec models, the closer you get to my view, which is you should be able to get 60 to 70% leverage from a package. And in fact, if Mike Grazley may or may probably isn't on this call, the last I checked, he was tasting bourbon in Kentucky. Um, if he was on this, he would laugh because when we used to go together to our customers, they'd say, you need to help us pick the best MES. And we'd say, here's five, each of which is no better than a 70% fit. What trade-offs are you willing to make? Is it because you've got a strong IT group? You might like the one that actually requires more bending and shaping at a code level in the UX or other areas. Oh, you've got a weak IT group, but a strong engineering team. You might be better served by the one where you need to do more perfection of the, lay of the, of the data coming from the OT layer. But there was never one that we ever said, this one's 100% perfect. We always looked at our customers' goals in their organization and said, partly because of who you are, partly because of where you're headed, this is the rightest one for you. Okay. So, Sean, I will. For those of you, if you want to reach out to Sean, you can find him on LinkedIn. Sean Robinson, put in Novatech. Actually, he'll come up. If you're connected to me, he's going to come up as the first option. Um, Sean, I really appreciate you coming on. Man, dude, you, I, I, I you know, take this for what you will. Um, you know, if you think the way you do, you really, you really belong in the in the ignition frameworks. I, I know that Novatech's got the Emerson relationship, so I don't want to. I don't want to knock that too much, but the, I, I really think you guys could do some pretty crazy stuff 
with like pure open IoT platforms, even Tulip actually. So, but I really wow. super appreciate you coming on the podcast. You know, from, from my view, all I will say is uh, we've got more stuff in our up our sleeve that, that lets us play in those areas with the vendors that we have, um, including the one with the big round meatball. I, from you, I will take that as a compliment. Awesome. I, I will, I will say that um, I know that I was a little rude in the way that I got us into this gotcha. conversation as much as anything. I'm grateful for the fact that you guys hey. showed some tolerance and said, Hey, yeah. If he wants a fight, let's have one. But then yeah, let's you came, you came on. Man. As, long, as long as you're willing to come on, I got no problem with somebody taking shots. As but as willing but I will say the cost of building is so cheap. Like you can build an entity, like define your plant, build the entity relationship diagram. You should probably already be doing that anyways, you know, like, and then just build out capabilities. Like with, I said, it depends on who your organization is and what the actual long-term cost is. I I, I studied accounting. I, think anyway, I, I did that so I could justify what I do to CFOs. Trust me, there's reasons I believe the balance is, in many cases, buy. I will accept build because like that comes to my form of who are you as a customer? <clears throat> your skills, your philosophies, where are you headed? Depending on that, there are definitely cases where I'd say not fill and integrate. Let me. Someone has big holes. You shouldn't be able to beat by. It shouldn't let, give you too much leverage. Let me let me finalize with this piece, and this is a really important point I was going to bring up earlier, and I just didn't. Which is this: I've always thought that it's very important that the structure of your business and the events of your business are decoupled from the solutions you buy for your business. So, if I create a namespace called OEE. And OEE has all of the parameters, all the in input parameters I need to calculate OEE, all of the standards that I need to define, like standard rate, scheduled rate, whatever. And then the output parameters where I can write back my availability, quality, performance, and OEE. I should be able to decouple my solution from that model. So I should be able to say, let's say I had started with Traxxas. I should be able to decouple Traxxas from the structure and the events of my business plug a different OEE engine in and be able to consume the same events and publish back to the exact same. I've always firmly believed that. I have not, now to be fair to GE Plan Apps, I have not attempted that yet. I do know it's possible because of the connectors that are supported. So, but I would like to try it. So it, it's, a, it's a huge, at the end of the day, I've, I've, I've done a deep dive on Plan Apps many times. At the end of the day, it's a TCO. I'd love to have a longer conversation with you on total cost of ownership so that I can I can make that case I, at the end of the day. That's the, but go I ahead. I want to point out though, that you do sell an MES product. You have a MES 4.0, but you still teach people how to build their own MES. In fact, we, we teach them how to build it from that product. Yeah, that's literally what we, so. So you're, you're obviously you're in the favor of build over buy. Jo uh, Josh, Ed, real quick, any questions that we need to answer? I, I know he's, we've got Sean 20 minutes over, but um, any questions that we should answer or? call it a day this was a good it was a good one sean i really appreciate you coming on man no hey appreciate the invitation next time let's find something we can also agree violently on on a totally yes. different topic i totally agree we definitely <laughs> want to have you back i think you're you're a great guest so um all right sean appreciate you everybody thank you for watching like subscribe comment down below and we will see